Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Random. Berto is your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today, as usual. Thank you for being here. But the first thing I want to ask everybody who is listening, whether you're listening on YouTube, whether you're listening on Periscope, Twitch, or Facebook Live, please share right away. Please share right away so that we can get our live coverage up. Our, our podcast coverage is great, but we need more live coverage. So please go ahead and share as much as you can. Let's get this stuff going. Let's get busy. We are going to have a great show. Uh, Michael Rodden, welcome aboard. British MCP, welcome aboard. Michael says, Electoral College convenes Monday. Trump and Republicans will very likely pull some dirty tricks with some faithless electors. Come out of the woodworks. Expect it. Subvert the popular will of the American people in a bid to maintain power while conservatives cheer on. Yay, that sounds like something Republicans would do. Michael Rudden also says, a coronavirus surges. As coronavirus surges, countries spend more on economic aid, but not the U.S. Unlike Western Europe and Canada, the U.S. is asking citizens to face the COVID-19 pandemic without any additional financial cushion from the government. The rest of the world realizes that their people are in dire straits right now. Are doing, they're doing what they can to help their people out. Not us, as our Congress seem more focused on helping mega corporations and their own people. Let's let's clear that up a bit, though. I want to be, I want to put blame where it belongs, and I will kind of cover that when I cover Chuck Todd and what he had to say, the grim outlook that Chuck Todd has to say. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Nanette Bird Smith, howdy, howdy, doing? Welcome aboard, everybody. Let's get busy. What is the show going to be about today? We have a great interview with a hell of an essayist, author. She writes for the New York the Times. The she writes for I mean she writes for just about everybody. And I think you gotta love love this woman. The way the interview went. I mean it didn't go any way that I expected. I expected it to be an antiseptic type interview where I ask a few questions, she answers. But uh she lent herself for a perfect flow, which I enjoyed dearly. We had a very, very good uh, interview, and that's what we're going to talk. So, Abigail Eastman on Patriarchy, Republican Party, Authoritarian, Catastrophic Leadership. Abigail Eastman discusses patriarchy, narcissism, and more. GOP has become officially, as Michael Rudnan can attest to, an anti-democratic party. You would think that after getting their butts beaten by 7 million votes, they wouldn't be concerned about trying to pull an electoral college fraud. We know the electoral college is a fraudulent system completely. We know that. It is a fraudulent system that was created. Don't believe all the crap you hear about, oh, the electoral college was created for uh, to make sure little states get lit. No, 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 no. It was created to keep power in the hands of a few. Make no mistake about what the reality is, folks. Make no mistake about the reality. It was created for a particular purpose. It was created for a particular purpose. Now, now, let's go ahead and get busy because I want to start with Chuck Todd. Because Chuck Todd said something good, but he was... Chuck Todd, he gave an intro. He gave an intro about uh, 
what, what would I say? He gave an intro that pretty much made you believe that he really finally saw things the way they were. But he missed something very important. Let's listen to it, and then we'll take it on the other side. We are in the midst of what is a catastrophic failure of leadership in this country. There's no other way to say it. We're running out of adjectives to describe it. In the past 24 hours, the twin crises we opened the show with yesterday, the historic threat to our public health and the historic threat to our own democracy, have sadly both gotten worse in the last 24 hours. And it's because of a failure of leadership, massively so, that begins with the person who calls himself president, and that's Donald John Trump. More than 293,000 Americans have died since February, more than 14,000 of them in the last week alone. And this president continues to show no leadership, uh, to try to stop the spread and no empathy for those who have died. Congressional leaders are deadlocked right now, unable to come to an agreement that everybody on Capitol Hill says they want an economic relief for Americans hurting because of the coronavirus. And of course, President Trump, who could show leadership here, has barely participated in these congressional talks if you count people talking on his behalf as participating. He himself He's not participated at all. But the one place the president is placing his energy is in trying to destroy the American democracy and overturn this election, where he's effectively split the Republican Party in half over whether to accept a legitimate result in this 2020 election. And in the midst of these emergencies gripping the country right now, the lone bright spot is coming not from the White House, not from feckless Capitol Hill, but from the private sector with Pfizer's vaccine, which, as we just mentioned, the FDA could approve as early as today, paving the way for the first doses to be administered by early next week. But even with Pfizer's vaccine approval expected, the head of the CDC is warning the death tolls, like we've seen the past two days, could be the new normal for the next two months. Probably for the next 60 to 90 days, we're going to have more deaths per day than we had in 9-11 or we had at Pearl Harbor. And the reality is the vaccine approval this week's not going to really impact, I think, to any degree for the next 60 days. Yesterday alone, 3,110 Americans died from covid it's more than on 9-11 or in the Pearl Harbor attack. It was the second consecutive day that deaths topped 3,000. This means that two days this week, Wednesday and Thursday, are now among the five deadliest events on record in this country's history. No matter how you calculate it, the death toll is staggering and increasing. And the leadership crisis in this country is sadly catastrophic. What Chuck Todd had to say was very important. But he missed something most that, that is very important. Yes, Donald Trump has already checked out. All Donald Trump wants to do right now is create mischief. And when he creates this mischief, what he wants to do then is to go ahead and uh, he doesn't care. The way he feels is they voted me out of office. Screw them. That is what's on his mind right now. That is what he thinks. But the person that we have to hold accountable now. The person that should be held accountable now is Mitch McConnell because he is holding everything up. Republicans and Democrats alike understand that Americans need help. They need a stimulus. They, not a stimulus. They need a survival check because the economy in a system like this fails when there are pandemics, right? So what we need are placeholders to make Americans whole until we have mitigated this particular pandemic. And there are ways financial to do it, fiscally to do it. The only reason we don't do it is because we are trying every single time, the, the people who run the country every single time, meaning McConnell, is to somehow make a profit for the plutocracy 
out of every particular event, whereas they would not be able to before. So Chuck Todd was right. Donald Trump's leadership is miserable. Donald Trump is a catastrophic leader. Chuck Todd is correct. But likewise, Mitch McConnell is not only catastrophic but evil because he can see people suffering and not do anything about it. He knows Americans are in pain. Americans are suffering. And he does absolutely nothing about it. So we need to put blame where blame belongs. Now, as far as what Bridge had to say, whereas we're numb to the 3,000 people that are dead every day. It's not that we're numb, I think, my dear friend. I think the problem is... These deaths occur. One person in Timbuktu, Arizona. Another 10 people in, uh, in Timbuktu, Florida. And, ten, and, and when we add up over uh, several thousand cities in this country, and one person here, another couple there, 10 there, and 20 there, these are deaths that are spread out throughout our 330 million Americans. So somehow it doesn't, it doesn't give the oomph as a building falling down and a thousand people in that building dying at the same time or a jetliner crashing and 300 people dying at one time. It's the same thing. It is people still dead. What we need are people being able to communicate that reality. When they talk about 3,000 people dead, what they need to do is go through cities and start saying dead. And uh, you know who's doing a great job of it right now? I tell you who's doing a great job of it. Uh, uh, that woman on uh, uh, MSNBC, she's on right now. Uh, what's her name? I, I, she, she's a former Republican, and she has a show on um, MSNBC. And at the end of every show, she gives the name of a person who dies and the history and the reality of that person and how that person lived their lives. And she humanizes what's actually occurring. And that gives value. To what's going on. But I tell you something that has gotten to me that really really kind of bugged me over the days. Somebody actually told me, I, as I spoke to them on the phone last night, I don't believe those numbers. I think they're calling other debts COVID debts just for the sake of calling it COVID debt. In other words, if somebody dies in a car accident and they do a swab test on that person, they call it a COVID death is there, if that person is positive for COVID. I'm not saying that that can't happen here and there. But the reality is when you see those trucks on the outside of hospitals, those are dead people in, that have to be in refrigerators that didn't have to be in refrigerators before. So the narrative that's being placed out there that says, oh, a lot of those dead that are COVID deaths are really not COVID deaths. They're heart attacks or there's something else. We have to get rid of those conspiracy theories. We cannot allow the fraud that is the leadership of the Republican Party to take hold. We can't allow that. We should not allow that. Now, this GOP strategist that we're going to play here, he really gets it on the number, and he's ashamed of the party for what the party has done. He's ashamed of the party for what the party has brought to its own, what the leadership has, of the party has done to its pew. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. Hey, Mike, if John F. Kennedy, may he rest in peace, were still among us, I'm aware he'd be 103 years old, but if he embarked on writing a volume two of Profiles in Courage, wouldn't it have to be more of a pamphlet? Do you see any examples out there these days? 
I, I think the Republican chapter would be only one page long and list a few people like Mitt Romney and Larry Hogan. But th- to me, this is incredible. I've been in, in fighting for Republicans for over 35 years. I joined the cause for a reason. And this is the lowest ebb, I think, this week of the a pretty awful Trump presidency. Because, we, you know, we have this lawsuit, which on one hand is kind of the rubber chicken of lawsuits. They're going to throw it at the Supreme Court. It's going to get thrown right back. It's ludicrous. There's no standing. But the idea behind it is toxic and real. And to think to the 106 Republican members of Congress, plus, you know, 17 attorney generals, would sign on to something that is essentially uh, an attempt to overturn a legitimate American election is something I couldn't even have imagined four years ago. So I, I think it is that the stain on the Republican Party is tremendous. And there are so many people uh, on that amicus brief. Uh, Dan Crenshaw of Texas knows better. Some of those other congressmen do, but they've let their narrow political ambition and their gutless fear of Donald Trump run wild. Now they're, now they're getting close to the treason business. It, it is unthinkable to me. Well, Mike, let's keep going right there on what you just said. Uh, Crenshaw's name stood out to me, too, as I perused that list of over 100 duly elected members of the House. Uh, Forgive my French. These are grown ass men and women. These are elected Republican representatives. I have never seen people so scared of an individual in my lifetime. But think of what they've done to weaponize the Republican voting base. And think of the expectations now on what we used to call traditional Republicans trying to run for re-election. Yeah, they've declared a war on the institution's democracy, and they're telling our, our hardcore third of the country that the election is illegitimate. It is massively irresponsible beyond anything you could suspect. And again, people like Dan Crenshaw have served the country well earlier in their careers, I don't know how they can look in the mirror right now. How could he look in the mirror right now? But I tell you something. Uh, I have been racking my brain to see how can so many Republican politicians, Republican leaders, jump on a sinking ship, jump on something that has no value. And, I, and you know, I rack my brain, folks. But I tell you what I'm starting to believe. And this is, I, I am, I, you know, and I have, first of all, let me, let me tell you something. I have no proof of this. And, you know, whenever I make hypotheses or whatever, I just tell the truth. But, you know, you have intuitions, right? I, I cannot believe that guys like Lindsey Graham, who were so negative on this president and said bad things about this president, and Cruz, who now said he will represent the president at the Supreme Court, and how they can make that turn, right? And I tell you what I really am starting to believe. It is true that uh, a lot of these people's emails and privacy has been breached, have been breached. And I'm starting to believe that the only reason a human being could, could make a 180-degree change towards an evil person like Donald Trump, towards a, a, a sick of, to, towards a, a, uh, somebody as evil as Donald Trump, somebody with no soul, no intellect as Donald Trump, and they have said it themselves before and then made a 180 degrees, Donald Trump's, uh, as, a, as a con man, I can almost, I would almost bet a tiny piece of my little finger that he has dirt on every single one of those 106 Republicans who came out and said, okay, we'll, we abide by, your, by you. We'll go ahead and support you. 
including Lindsey Graham, and we know what a lot of Lindsey Graham skeletons are. We, we can assume what they are. But we can almost guarantee you that he has a dossier on every single one of those Republicans who have come out knowing better. Crenshaw here in Texas, my district, he knows better. There is something on each one of these guys. I will almost bet the president has that these guys, that he goes ahead and he says, the president knows that you did X, Y, Z. The president knows that you did X, Y, Z. You're with him or this leaks tomorrow. And then they leak something about uh, Swalwell, one of our Democratic Congress people, just to show that they could do it. Just to show that they could do it. They leaked something on a Democrat to say, okay, if we could leak this on a Democrat, think about what we can leak on you. And, uh, well, no, I won't. I, 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 Lee Grant, I can't do that, right? Because it's really bad on Lindsey Graham. And since I have no proof, I can't say specifically what is the notion on Lindsey Graham. I'm more responsible than that. I can give uh, general feelings as far as what I think is happening with all the um, Republicans, but I won't go ahead and say, oh, Lindsey Graham is... Uh, I won't say that. Anyhow, secondly, I want to do the last tape here on Steve Schmidt. And I want, Lee, Brother Lee Grant, I want you to listen to, to Schmidt. Please, listen to Schmidt. And I'd like to see your comment after you listen to Steve Schmidt. Here it goes. Steve Schmidt's words explaining all of this are certainly worth repeating one more time and perhaps many more times after tonight. The Republican Party is an organized conspiracy for the purposes of maintaining power for self-interest and the self-interest of its donor class. There is no fidelity to the American ideal or American democracy. And Steve, uh, your words, I, I want to make them the wallpaper behind me uh, of this show because what I constantly get uh, outside of this show when people talk to me is that they always want to know why. Why is this happening? Why is Mitch McConnell doing this? Why doesn't Mitch McConnell have people in Kentucky who need help? Why is he doing this? Uh, and your explanation yesterday stopped me in my tracks, as I said here last night. And it does seem to explain everything that we're talking about in terms of what Washington Republicans were up to today, both with the Supreme Court and with the refusal to move on COVID relief. Well, you saw it coming this summer, Lawrence, the astounding moment when the Republican platform became nothing more than a loyalty oath to Donald Trump, an oath of obedience, complete obedience to Trump. That's what the Republican platform was, not even a pretense of policy issues or ideas in it. And so today is a historic day. Um, and I know that sometimes in the instant analysis culture of fast moving events, we can overstate the importance of an event in the context of the moment and say that this is a meaningful event in history. Sometimes it's obvious on uh, September 11th, right? For sure, you could say on that day that th that was a meaningful event in American history. It was a before and after moment. Today was a before and after moment in the life of the nation. 106 members of Congress broke faith with American democracy today. They did something the fascists, the Nazis, the Confederate Army was unable to do. Uh, they forced 
um, a majority or a majority of elected officials of one of the two major parties in a federal house uh, broke faith with the idea that the people are sovereign, that we're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Democracy definitionally requires one side being willing to lose an election, to accept the results, to come back the next time in the competition of ideas. And so what we saw today, this breaking of faith, which followed the poisoning of faith and belief, system, the American system, the American Republic, which has endured since 1776, it was poisoned this month, faith and belief in it. Um, and we're going to live with this now for all the balance, certainly of our lives, Lawrence, because the competition in American politics is now between a Democratic Party, meaning a party that believes in democracy versus an autocratic party. And we've never seen that. When you see that many members of Congress breaking faith with their oath to overturn an election because they don't like a result, we're off the reservation to a place that we might not be able to get back on it from. And um, so it's a very worrying moment. And what it means is now we're one, we're one election away from losing the country to people who no longer believe in democracy. We are one election away from people who no longer believe in democracy. What he means is the next time the Republicans take over the government, rest assured, they will attempt to institute policies that no longer make it any possibility that we can consider ourselves a democracy. That is not a scary proposition. That is a real proposition. And what we have to do as a people is not only educate or, say, bring our people out to vote, but educate Republicans as well who, because many of us for our particular parties sort of get tunnel vision, we have to let folks be aware as far as what's going on here. Um, so uh, he's absolutely right. We are in danger at this point in time, given that, you know, they have made it vogue. It is okay now to actually do these things. When you have your leadership, make it okay. It has a tendency to stick. And that is the problem right now. They have made it okay for people's anti-democratic feelings and wanting to win at all costs. They've allowed that to expand because it came from the leadership. Now, uh, brother, brother Lee Grant says, Trump was legally elected in 2016, yet left his march in the street saying, not my president. Where was their feet, uh, fealty to democracy then? Let me give you the difference, Brother Grant. It goes as follows. You had private citizens, private organizations going out there and saying, oh, no, he didn't really win. He didn't really win, which in my humble opinion as well, Donald Trump didn't legally win the election. But I'm a private person saying that. And not only am I saying that, I am... Also saying that from the point of view of not trying to change policy or whatever, because I don't have what it takes to do that. But when it comes to the position of Donald Trump and now, we have these guys using the institution of the state to actually try to overturn an election. There is a difference. One is using the power of the state that you're currently in control of, Lee Grant. The other was just people saying, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. I don't like him. I don't think he won fair and square. And I need you to see that. Grant 
I need you to see the difference. Because if I had, if I had any, if I had seen any progressive go out there and did what I see these guys are doing, I would have spoken up against that. Because we have to have a true democracy and we have to have institutions that we work through to stand up for. Otherwise, we have anarchy. And I think you know me good enough to know that if progressives did that, went into Congress and, and swore an oath to Hillary Clinton saying, at all costs, we are going to get past this. It's not the same. The GOP is using the institutions to go against democracy. They're using the institutions of democracy to go against democracy. That is the difference, Grant. And you got to give me that, and I need you to understand that. Because we need the, the, right, the people on the right not to agree with us. We don't care. But we need you to be at least... Maxine Waters never did anything outside of that realm, Lee Grant. Look it all up. Please do it. Do not try to create false equivalences. You are better than that. You are better than that. You are better than that. I, I, like I said, I've, I've gotten in trouble by coming out on, against the people on the left when we've done certain things. In fact, listen to the interview that we have the next time when we, that's coming up next when we talk about the equivalence between the left and the right. Watch out for that part when we talk in this next discussion. But before we get to that interview, which I'm getting to right now, I need to do my quick ask, and I'm going to have to do it quicker today because I'm running a little bit behind. Please, folks, consider getting my book. It's worth it. It's worth it. How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. How do you get that book? Get that book right there at, um, at Amazon. And Lee, go get the book too, Brother Lee. Get the book. And uh, if you don't want to, if you want, if you want to cut out the middleman, go ahead and get it directly at our store at Politics Done Right. And that store is at politicsdoneright.com slash store. Politicsdoneright.com slash store. You can get it right there at our store to cut out the middleman if that is what you would prefer. What we would prefer, whichever way is, is fine with you. Uh, now, if you want to support our show as well, please click on that join button if you're watching on YouTube become a subscriber we are we are trying to build a huge subscriber base at that little cheap rate so that we can keep expanding that so please go and click that join button if you're watching us on YouTube if you're not watching us on YouTube you can still join our YouTube posse what uh, Bridge MCP calls the PDR posse by going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Again, that is politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Meaning if you're on Twitter, if you're on Periscope, if you're on Twitch, if you're on Facebook Live, just click on that link I just placed in there, politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Become a part of our YouTube, uh, uh, our YouTube by clicking on join. Please do so. We need your support. Uh, of course, we would like you to become, uh, you can also become a Patreon. And that you get to become a patron by going to politicsunright.com slash patron, politicsunright.com slash patron, and patron is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. So go to politicsunright.com slash patron. And of course, we always take PayPal. We love PayPal as well. So you can just go to politicsunright.com slash PayPal. Let me get there. Politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal to provide us support via PayPal. So any, anybody who goes ahead during our interview and click join and become a new member, 
we'll definitely call you out. So please go ahead and click that member. But here we go with Abigail. Abigail is going to, I think, let me tell you, I think you are going to love this interview. Let's go. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today we have the honor to have Abigail Arisman. It's, she's an author of The Radical State, How Jihad is Winning Over Democracy in the West. An award-winning journalist she is and an essayist. She has contributed to Foreign Policy, Forbes, Salon.com, The New Republic, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times. I'm getting tired saying all this stuff. The World <laughs> Policy Review and other venues. She is a regular contributor to the investigative project on terrorism and has spoken widely on the subject, including appearances on uh, WNYC, Brian Lear Show, BBC News, and CNN. For more information, remember to consult her at abigailisman.com, A-B-I-G-A-I-E-S-M-A-N.com. Her latest book, Rage, Narcissism, Patriarchy, and the Culture of terrorism welcome aboard abigail how are you doing today i'm good thank you i love how you say that well let, let, let me tell you something um i started to read the beginning of your book and you took me on a journey through a run through new york i'm telling you something i like your way with words uh, i can see why you win the awards i can also see uh you take people where you are as you write and that's a great thing for somebody like me at least well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, tell me a little bit about, uh, before we get started uh, deep into this stuff, this is a political show, but we don't necessarily get very political with people who aren't necessarily political, but I kind of think that you are. So what are your thoughts on where we are in America today? Let's just talk about it from a, pol from a political point of view. Well, <laughs> how long you got? Well, Actually, since I want to talk more about rage, give me whatever you want, and I'll kind of. I, cut I, yeah, I I'll tell you. I think if, if you want um, where we are specifically today, um, I think we're on the cusp, and I like to think we're on the cusp of something very hopeful. I think we are going from, and this is this obviously relates very closely to my book. We're going from an administration under a man who. Um, was was accused under oath of having beaten and raped his first wife, um, who was known to have beaten at least one of his children, to the administration of the man who created the Violence Against Women Act. And I think that's about as good a metaphor for where we were and where we're going um, as I can possibly give you. You know something? That was actually pretty beautiful. I mean, I, and the, the fact that you actually use the word, you're hopeful in this transition. I mean, I, I, I am always hopeful that if we stay engaged, we can get things done, that we can effect change. I'm always hopeful about that. Uh, what, what, was, what felt a little bit terrible about this was that there were 74 million Americans who felt okay. I don't, say, I don't, I don't necessarily say that they all agree with what we had in power, but somehow were willing to continue what we had. And um, in, in, in that light, I want to ask you, what, how do we get to those Americans? I mean, I like your, your book seems like the, the type of books that you write and having more people write books like that seem like 
an antidote, your thoughts? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I would like to think that my book was something of an antidote because that was part of why I, I wrote it. Um, not just for the current administration, but for a general culture of terrorism, which is where we are in America and around the world right now. There's an enormous amount of violence. There's a rise in violent crime. There's a rise in domestic violence. There's a rise in hate crimes. Um, I think part of why, why that is and part of why it, it turned into 70, 74 million votes for Donald Trump is that much of this is generated by fear. You know, we, we, we hate what we fear. There's this fight or flight response and people fight against once they're, what they're afraid of and very charismatic or populist leaders succeed by making people afraid. That's how they gain power. And in the process of making people afraid, they also make them, many of them, more tolerant of violence, sometimes more violent themselves, because there is this enemy that has to be vanquished. Um, I, I genuinely believe, and I am an optimist, but I genuinely believe that without that voice in power, with a more calm, kind, empathic voice, that will change. Because um, people will no longer be as afraid. Let's examine those 74 million uh, people because, um, and, and we are going to get into, uh, and I think you're kind of edging, much of what you're saying sort of mimics some of the things that, that you say in, in, in the passages of the book. But I want to examine the 74 million people since you opened that door. Um, you, you talk about fear. Yeah. Fear, tell me what are the fears, uh, look into the eyes of those 74 million people. What is it that they have to fear, really? That they have to fear or that they think they have to That fear. they think they have to fear. That's a better Very way of putting chance. it. Um, they feel that they have to fear being replaced, losing mm. their status, losing their prestige, losing their power, losing their position in society, losing their jobs. Um, most of the time, the things that we fear most in life are the things that we fear losing. So if you fear losing something, um, you will do whatever you can to protect it and to protect your possession of it, your power over it. How do you tell people that they're fearing losing something they never had? Oh, but they did. Explain. Well, I, I, to say they never had it would be to say there's no such thing as white privilege, and I think that there is. I am so glad. I, I, again, you open the, you always open the door <laughs> first, you know. And uh, when I do my interviews, I try honest. to make it very pleasurable for the person that I'm interviewing, and I, I, I kind of lead things in certain. But you're, you're great. Now, now that you're talking about um, white privilege, I'm. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you are white, I think. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, when we talk about white privilege in my domain, uh, I know that people think it exists. I know that people live it. I know that when I go into a store that I'm treated differently than somebody with a different hue than I am. But I, from how, where I came from, 
that to me is uh, what's the word that I that I want to use, and I want you to expand on this for me. Uh, when I talk about something that they never had, I've always seen racism and that privilege as a tool. In other words, it was a tool for, in my opinion, for separation in such a manner that a few elite, including the honorary white, notice I said the honorary white, was also an accomplice of that to keep everybody in their place and keep just a few on top. I'd like you to tell me if you follow what I'm saying. I think I do. Okay. And you want me to say something about it? I want you to, right. I I want you to, to expand on that within the nature of your books, if you will, because I think, I think one of the reasons this white privilege thing lasts so long is because we've been fighting it in the wrong manner. And I'd like your thoughts on that. Um, I think I should also point out that I'm not just white, but I'm Jewish. Okay. Being Jewish and especially someone who lives most of the time in Europe, um, I am conscious of and have felt what I know many black Americans feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know what it is to be hated and cut out because of who I am, Mm -hmm. whether I'm even a practicing Jew or not. I know that it is dangerous where I live to be Jewish. Um, So I understand where that feeling comes from, but I also feel that you are really on the button when you talk about the elite and this group of people who have tried to keep everyone else, including the Jews, including Blacks, including American, Asian Americans, keep them down. Um, And I think that is still the same thing. It is this, they have this power. They've always had this power throughout the world. And anything that threatens it becomes the enemy. So you have have two ways of dealing with that. And there are those people who are raised in cultures and raised in families and schooled to be empathic and inclusive and not to fear what is other. And you have people who are raised and trained in their cultures, in their families, in their schools to fear what is other because it's a threat. And if you fear it, you hate it. Now, I I tell you something interesting and and then I I want to go a little bit deeper into your book. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people look at the privileges and and the racists and all these haters as, uh, uh, they, they look at them as, you know, these bad people and all of that. Ironically, as I grew up, as I grew older, I actually felt sorry. I, here I am as a black man and a grieved, a Latino, a Caribbean, all these things all in one package. And when I look at the racist, when I look at the sexist, when I look at the homophobe, a homophobe of which I used to be until I grew up and learned, I actually feel a real sense of pity for the person. That's that's interesting in two ways. One is that I agree with you. I do too, although I feel more compassion than pity. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. Pitying somebody is a way of putting them beneath you. And I try very hard not to see any of us. You know, I may disagree with somebody's politics, 
but I don't want to look down on them. I just want to feel more compassion for them and hope that I can change their minds. Thank you. Thank you, because I think you corrected me appropriately. It's not pity that I feel. It is compassion. You're right. Uh, you're, you're, and thank you for, I mean, words have, words have meaning. And I, I, I stand corrected on that. I, I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. Um, let's, let's go into rage, narcissism, patriarchy, and the culture of terrorism. The average person that reads that title says, what the hell does narcissism, patriarchy, and terrorism have in common? And I think the idea here is that you're going to connect those dots. So start connecting for me. Narcissism, which is what we've just lived through. Um, narc- it is difficult to connect the dots because it's not a linear connection. It's, it's really a web um, of the three of them. But a, a person who is narcissistic is usually someone who um, is reacting from shame um, and, and a sense of needing to overcome that shame. And so they make themselves greater than everybody else. And the worst thing that can happen to somebody like this is to feel shamed, which is what we're living with with, with Donald Trump at the moment. Um, and what happens when they feel that kind of shame is they grow violent, they become enraged. And that's the title of the book is Rage. Um, their rage is what can lead to terrorism. Part of what leads to narcissism and part of what leads to a terrorist kind of culture is a patriarchal culture or patriarchal hierarchy, um, which is sort of part of what a lot of people call toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. The idea of the man as this muscle bound knight in shining armor warrior who is going to save the world, Sly Stallone, you know, all of these people, Rambo, um, who are going to, to somehow rescue everybody by the virtue of their greatness and their strength. And that is actually a very dangerous image because it, it promotes the idea that goodness is power, strength is power, and not just power, but power over other people, other things. Um, and a narcissist tends to see himself, particularly a male narcissist, tends to see himself in that way as this over, you know, this all-powerful savior of the universe. Um, and when you pull that out from under him, he becomes enraged. So it's all very complicated and intermingled. Um, so it's not a linear, linear connection, but they are very closely connected. Well, I mean, the fact that you do have more male uh, terrorists and you have female terrorists, I think, uh, give such credence to patriarchy as being uh, sort of a genesis of that kind of behavior. And, and I, I have not seen, you know, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound sexist, but I have not really seen too many women that I would be able to consider narcissist either. So, uh, well, I think you, it depends on how you define a narcissist. Exactly. When women who are raised in certain cultures um, that breed narcissism by the nature of that culture mm-hmm. can be absolutely the example. Often, well, the difference that you often see. Um, and this happens very often in Middle Eastern cultures, is the association of the I with the we. So somebody may not be narcissistic as a person, but views the we as superior to everybody else and will die for that we. 
for that for the ummah, as they say in, mm-hmm. in Islam. And um, this is where you often do get women who become suicide bombers, for instance. Ah, okay. I see. Now, it's interesting that you, you brought in some, some of the Middle East here, because um, in uh, this sort of a two-part question or, or a twofer, because um, we tend to call what we have here not terrorism, but something else. Mm-hmm. But over there, terrorism. Now, you've interviewed uh, a lot of white supremacists, as well as you've interviewed jihadists. Tell me if there's a difference, if the genesis of their behavior is the same. Kind of give us a breakdown. As what, I, what I hope that'll do is kind of take some of the blinders off of Americans. The genesis is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. It is still this sense of us and you know, you and me, us and them, um, the sense of needing to protect the we that is us, that is me, against the them that is you. Um, and the you is always this threat to the we. And that's true for white supremacists who look at blacks and Asians and Muslims and Jews as other. And it's true for radical Muslims who see themselves as above and beyond other Muslims who are most at risk and non-Muslims. So it's, it's the same thing. And it comes out of families that are structured very much the same way with the same kinds of beliefs about where we are as people and who has rights and who does not have rights and what is good and what is not good and what is power and not is what not power. Now, is the United States now in our current form uh, more so than before? And I'd really like to hear that. Let's say because if we, we if we throw in the eighteen in the seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds, in are we at this point in our history a culture that is creating more terrorism, or uh, or or getting you know where do you see us on that scale? I think you could say that we're creating more terrorism on many levels. I don't know, I, I, I'm not in a position to say whether we are more violent, because again, if you go back a few centuries, people were more violent in general um, in their interactions on the streets. Um, but there's certainly more, more public violence, more general violence. And part of that, of course, is the availability of weapons that can do more damage than they were able to do in the 17th century and the 18th century. Um, but also we are a culture increasingly in a culture of extremes and the far right and the far left are both, and this goes back to it again, experiencing their own kind of narcissism. And it's again, the same issue of, you know, it's my way or die. You do it my way or I'm going to come and get you. And this is happening as well on college campuses with a lot of students who refuse to listen to ideas that they disagree with, um, refuse to allow right-wing speakers and they'll have riots and, and sometimes they get violent, refuse to allow books, don't wanna read books that they think they don't approve of. I think that's very dangerous. And I think it's in its way as dangerous as what's happening on the far right. Interestingly, that politics done right, that's where 
if, if I must say myself, we excel in that. We bring in left wingers, right wingers, anarchists. Everybody gets a chance to interview here and and put out because I I agree with that. I completely disagree with what occurred at Berkeley and these other places where they don't allow the right wingers. I think the easiest way to expose what I think is wrong with the right is just to let them talk. You know, <laughs> I mean. I've always said that, let them talk and then ask questions. If you, when, I do, when I talk to, I, I, I wrote a book called uh, How to, uh, I mean, it's worth it, how to talk to your, uh, your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors, right? And most of talking to them has always been asking them questions because usually when, the question, when they answer the questions as far as their wants, it turns out to be they generally want progressive wants economically and socially, well, I don't discuss things. I, I, when you get into religion, I can, there's no way that I can go there, right? Because it's that that's a different thing. You have to decide if you want to have faith or not. Uh, in that light, um, I have one concern that I that I just heard, and I'd like maybe if you could expand on that for me. When we talk about the far right and the far left, um, do you really think there is some sort of an equivalence there? I think there's a potential for it. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I'm not, for, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who believes that Antifa is a thing and that, um, it, it, that the Antifa movement, which is somehow led by, I don't know, George Soros, I guess. Right. It's not, not a movement, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't exist, but right. I'm not one of those people who, who sees this tremendously violent far left movement. On the other hand, I think there's potential. So help me out here, because I, I, I agree with that answer, right? How do we mitigate that? Because at this point in time, they're not equivalent. But as you say, they could become equivalent. And I think that would be, as, I, I, as, a, as a leftist, I think the left is very virtuous and, um, in, in, in what we do, based on what we believe in. And I, I see the right otherwise, not as bad people, just as misled people. And my question then becomes, how do we prevent what you just said from really occurring? Because I think you're right. I think, um, and I, I talk about this a lot in, in one of the chapters of, of, uh, of Rage, which is the culture of terrorism chapter. Um, when I talk about what has happened to the left and what is happening to, to the youth, particularly in America, but also in, in Europe, where I live most of the time. Um, and that is this kind of mollycoddling of, of a generation and now going on to a second generation that is, in fact, has been, has been studied as being the most narcissistic generation we've ever had. Um, if you continue to give in to this and you continue to say, okay, we won't, we won't teach these books, we won't listen to these speeches, we won't allow these things that you disagree with, um, two things will happen. One is that it will increase the likelihood and level of their rage when they are crossed because they become less and less accustomed to having to deal with things that make them uncomfortable. And it also will limit their exposure to what I think is the most important thing in gaining empathy, which is literature. And I believe very deeply in the power of the arts and in literature to instill empathy, to read empathy in people. And if we are telling college students that they don't have to read literature because they don't like it, we're going to end up with people who have much less empathy. And then, then they will be more violent. 
Wow. Um, let me let me first say that we're kind of running low on time, and um, this interview didn't go at all as I thought it would. I thought it would have been a whole lot more antiseptic relative to your book. I think this is a much more enlightening interview for uh, our audience, and I think that'll just give the impetus for a reason why they should listen to, uh, first of all, get your book and listen to the words emanating from the book, because um, I enjoyed this Dearly, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? Oh, that's the question I always ask people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I honestly don't know. I I think you asked me some very good questions. It's concerning to me. um, One thing that we didn't talk about, and that is a very big part of, of rage, is the issue of domestic violence in families and against women and um, the fact that this is not taken as seriously as it needs to be. People don't understand it. They don't understand what the experience is. And the experience is one of terror. It is a true terror. And it needs to be looked at better. It needs to be legislated better. Um, I would hope that people start to understand that private violence is public violence, that what happens in the home happens to everyone. Um, So I would just hope that people, whether they buy my book or not, start to look at what domestic violence is really about and how it affects everybody. And that is why I always ask that last question, because first of all, I get enlightened by, wow, uh, next time around, I should have, I saw that notion in your book, and it's something that I really should have asked likely in the beginning. I didn't. So thank you so kindly for bringing that up uh look uh i uh, i really enjoyed this interview and uh i i hope folks that are listening to the to, to us right now go out there and get the book you know i don't always tell folks after we do interviews to go get the book or what get this book abigail or eastman thank you so kindly for having been on politics done right thank you very much well, folks, I hope you like that. Now, everybody knows that I have, an, uh, you know, I have a soft spot for millennials because I always thought that we did millennials wrong. In my humble opinion, I think we did millennials wrong. So uh, as Michael Rundin says, the idea that millennials are the most narcissistic is actually a myth. Narcissism studies find boomers are more hypersensitive than millennials. And ironically, that is so, in my humble opinion, true. Whenever I go on to, bl- to blogs and I write about um, what we as baby boomers or gen- older Gen Xers have done to uh, to the millennials and below, I always get a pushback that says I'm pushing ageism, which it's not true. If you take a look at who we've elected, who have inflicted the pain that is really attacking the, the millennials, the Gen Zs, etc., I'm sorry. I think those of us who elected the terrible, terrible leaders have done that. Let me run through real quick our people. Bridge MCP, welcome aboard. Tank 28, welcome aboard. Crink Crink, welcome aboard. Lee Grant, welcome aboard. Uh, let's see who else. Dev Denny, welcome aboard. Thank you for being here. Uh, let's see. Am I, uh, I'm, I'm going up the list. If I miss you, please put it to the bottom and then I'll scroll back down. Para ver, para ver, para ver quien más está aquí. Lee Grant, I think I called you up. Michael Rudnan, I think I called you out. I think Bridge MCP. Uh, hey, Barney McAvain, how you doing, Barney? Great to see you here, my brother. 
Uh, okay, who else is here? Who else is here? Uh, e. Willie, somebody stole my, my name. Uh, let's see who else is here. I'm going up. Uh, Norman Reynolds. Hey, folks, I'm, I'm going to expose Norman. Norman did a 26-mile Speedy Gonzalez on the bike at over 17.5 miles an hour north of that, which means that dude was going at times 26 miles an hour. Man, love you, brother. You, you're tough. You're tough. Lee Grant, no, Walters isn't. Uh, it doesn't belong in that stuff, guy. My brother, love you, but no, don't put Walters there. Walters is a very good woman. Uh, let's see who else is here that I'm missing. If I miss you, just throw your name at the bottom. I know some of you probably checked out already. Uh, let's see who else is here. Who else is here? Aye, my eyes, my eyes. Deborah John, welcome aboard. I think I don't think I called you out yet. And I'm scrolling. Man, it's a lot of messages, eh? Okay, I'm almost there. Let me get to the bottom. I saw some new messages coming. Let me see if it's just people repeating a few things here. Lee Grant, S-Man is correct to point out the leftist voice and attempts this. I agree with her there, Lee. I hope you saw that. I agreed with her. But there is not, but we cannot have the false equivalence. Even as I agreed with her, there was a false equivalence that I thought she was implying. And then she said, no, that is not what she was doing. But there is the possibility. And I agree with her 100%. Uh, Norman says we're talking about uh, what could happen. Uh, what could happen? The false equivalence that the media wants to perpetrate. Yes, ex- Norman gets it. Norman gets it. Dev- Debbie, uh, I hope I didn't incite anything. No, we are all a family here. The left, the right, the middle, the anarchists. Everybody here come in. Come to politics done right to have fun, folks. If you're just joining us, please consider getting my book again. I look. For those of you who's getting, why does he always hawk his book when he's on? For two reasons. One, I want you to read it to see where we're coming from. And two, I need to make the dough to keep this stuff going. So I need it for two reasons. One, I want to expose the knowledge. And two, I do need the dough. So please go ahead, my brothers and my sisters, support the program. Uh, To get the book, you can go ahead and... uh, Go to the Amazon. I just put the link in there. And to get it at our store, just go to politicsdoneright.com slash store. And here it is as well for the politicsdoneright.store. I just put that in there as well. And if you want to support us via PayPal, there it is. And please, if you're on YouTube, click the join button and become a part of our what? Call the PDR Posse. And who's named it the PDR Posse? Nobody else but Bridge MCP. And, of course, you can become a patron by going to uh, politicsunright.com slash pay. Oh, I, cu- I chopped it off. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. It's politicsunright.com slash Patreon. That will work. Okay. I know you guys have places that you can go. I know there are options that you have. Thank you so kindly for being with me. I love you all. I respect you all. I want you all to come here and have civil discussions. When you have a, 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 a somebody like Bridge MCP, a progressive with somebody like uh, Lee Grant, a conservative, and we can still communicate and exchange ideas. We can do better than the politicians are. Let's do it. Love you guys. You know how I end this, baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right. And you know what I'm going to say? I am what? Out. Hey, where's my music? I am what? Out.
we spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.